Welcome to this episode of Van Attorneys Legal Pad Podcast. This is a podcast by Van Attorneys PLLC, a law firm of attorneys licensed to practice law in the state of North Carolina. The content of this podcast is not to be considered as legal advice for any particular situation or case, and this podcast does not constitute creating an attorney-client relationship. Welcome to another episode of Van Attorney's Legal Pad Podcast. We are really enjoying doing this. We hope that this is helpful to you and uh, giving you some information. So Ian Richardson and I, James Van, um, look forward to doing these. It's always fun to get together. It's another beautiful day uh, outside of our office. And so we're going to be talking today about what happens after serving a legal process at a summons and complaint. But before we get into that, we always try to uh, cover a current legal topic and one that Ian and I were just talking about uh, earlier has to do with contracts, the COVID issues, uh, force majeure, and just the impact that we are uh, talking with our clients about and getting phone calls about, but also um, reading about. Um, so Ian, I know we talked about this earlier, you know, we're looking at a lot of them have to do with lease agreements. Uh, there's some other contracts as well, but, you know, how COVID is impacting companies uh, not being able to perform and trying to renegotiate, maybe say, start off with the lease agreements, right? We get landlords calling us in commercial settings, not residential, but commercial. Um, and also the tenants occasionally will call and, and ask about, you know, what they can, what can they do? And I saw an article recently in, uh, I think it was Wall Street, that talked about uh, landlords are pressure from their tenants, commercial tenants, about not wanting to have to pay their their full lease. Um, and we've talked about this a little bit before. And, and obviously, if you've got a force majeure uh, provision in your contract, I, we would certainly tell you to look to that first and then call counsel and start talking about it if you're a landlord or you're the tenant, right, and figure out what that looks like. Uh, we've heard a lot of different uh, responses, both from landlords and tenants. And Tenants are saying, hey, look, I can't afford to pay it in general because we're having a, a, a decrease in our revenue or I don't need that much space anymore. I've seen a lot of for lease signs and commercial uh, uh, spaces. Ian, what are, what are you hearing when you're talking to folks? Yeah, I'm hearing a lot of the same things. And, uh, you know, we've got all these folks that are working from home right now. So, uh a commercial tenant really doesn't want to pay for a big, beautiful office space if there's nobody occupying that space. So I think that's driving a lot of this. And then, uh, I mean, all you really have to do right now is just drive up and down Hillsborough Street outside of our office, and you see a lot of uh, great businesses that are unfortunately either closed down uh, for a period of time or closed down permanently. So uh, obviously is inviting a conversation between that business and whoever uh, landlord is. Um, but yeah, I think uh, what you got to do in these situations is just look first to the contract, no matter which side you're on, and figure out if your contract was written in a way that contemplates the situation that we all now find ourselves in. I, what I'm seeing is that a lot of them aren't really uh, written in a way that uh, predicted this. Is that what you're seeing too, James? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we a lot of times the lawyers wrestle over some provisions, but usually force majeure has in the history not been one of those that you argue much about or, or wrestle over much. Um, but it's now certainly at the forefront of everyone's mind. Um, 
and it obviously depends on how your contract was, was written, what it somewhat contemplated, right? Um, and it, even at this point, right, I mean, at some point we had the governor's, or at least in North Carolina, uh, we had the governor's order that said stay home. That's not the case now. So does force majeure help you? really depends on how it's written, right? And it's, it's really coming down to negotiation. This article I read in Wall Street was talking about primarily, you know, bigger cities like New York and Chicago and L.A. and those kinds of cities. Um, I mean, they're just companies that are just saying, I'm, I can't pay. I'm not going to pay or I don't want to pay. Um, and then landlords are having to figure out how to handle that. Um, some of them are adding it to I've talked to one landlord uh, tenant who has added the rent to the end of the lease, uh, which, you know, gives the, the tenant some help. Um, I've talked to some other people who are saying, look, we just don't need this much space. We need to cut our lease in half as far as the space we're leasing. And that comes down to negotiation because more likely force majeure is not going to allow you to negotiate a, a smaller square footage, probably depending on how it's written. But, um, and then the other side of this is the supply side, right? I mean, we all heard that this is going to hit supply side eventually, but if you can't get materials that you need, right. For whatever you're selling, um, and you've got a contract to provide this, you know, do you, does that protect you? What do you do? You know, have you, have you had encountered that yet, Ian? Um, I, I think we ha are starting to encounter that in the construction arena. I know that, uh, a lot of material suppliers and a lot of contractors are having this issue of just getting stuff to build houses, build, uh, commercial buildings, um, and what is available is just so expensive. Uh, so that's creating a lot of conversations between uh, the contractor and their client because the contractor may have bid a job for a certain amount uh, with normal material prices, and then now all of a sudden material prices are through the roof, and it doesn't make sense to do the job. So I've had several calls about how do I deal with that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's hitting all sorts of different industries. Uh, but what's important to think about if you feel like maybe you have a way to either renegotiate or get out of a deal is we've really got to look at the facts and circumstances of your particular situation. If, using my contractor example, if you bid the job poorly under any set of circumstances, you're not going to be able to rely <laughs> on COVID to get yourself a better deal. Uh if your business was not doing well uh, before COVID, you're probably not going to be able to argue to your landlord that you need to get out of the lease because of COVID if you were already missing payments. Um, so I think the better your track record was pre-COVID with whatever your particular situation, the more likely you're going to be able to, in good faith, use COVID as a, an explanation as to why things are now all of a sudden different. You know, I'll tell you what's interesting, Ian, and I'm not sure, you and I have not even had a chance to talk about this. So we get um, legal publications uh, electronically primarily now, um, and there's a database that we are part of, and uh, they announced that they were going to start having a COVID update on case law. And I thought, okay, I'll subscribe to this. I want to see what it's like. And they're putting out every day cases across the country that are uh, having to do with COVID, right? And it's some of them are force majeure. Some of them are issues having to do with liability because you know they contend somebody caught COVID or whatever. You know, that, I think that was what everybody's concern was, at least in the business world initially. It was like, do I have liability if somebody can, can prove they got COVID from us? How they prove that, I have no idea. But 
um, it's really interesting that this database, this, it's a, well, I guess a worldwide, but uh, certainly U.S. based database of showing information about COVID cases. Um, it's just really getting started. I'm sure it's going to probably gain some some more steam as we go forward. I haven't gotten anything out of it yet that I think is helpful to our listeners, but it's interesting that they've got this database. So just something else to, to think about. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're going to see litigation about this for years and years to come. Um, so this week we are going to talk uh, on the regular content of the podcast about what happens after the service of process. So in our last episode, we took kind of a deep dive into the law about how you get somebody served after you've made the decision that you have to sue them. Uh, what we're going to talk about today is what happens after that. Uh, and we're going to break this up into at least two parts um, because there are really two ways that litigation can go after a defendant gets served. The first way that we're going to talk about today is uh, really with the the non-answering, the non-responsive defendant. And then what we're going to get into next week is whenever you have a defendant who actually responds. And that can that's more of a full-fledged uh, litigation matter. So that's why we're not sure yet whether it's going to be one additional part or uh, a couple more parts as we talk about the different things that happen in litigation. Um, but the first thing that you really do, uh, no matter whether you've got a defendant that is going to uh, contest whatever you filed against them or uh, whether you've got a defendant who's just going to ignore it, uh, is you've got to wait. Uh, there's necessarily, just because of the rules of civil procedure, uh, at least a 30-day waiting game after you get service where you're waiting to see whether that person's going to respond, whether they're going to hire a lawyer, whether they're going to reach out and try to do anything. But uh, there's no other action you can take within those first 30 days uh, in general um, other than just wait and see uh, really how the case is going to go. Um, so the rules of civil procedure are clear that an answer uh, is not required for the first 30 days. Um, so during these first 30 days, uh, the good news from a client standpoint is your lawyer is probably not going to be billing you a whole lot because we're really just kind of waiting to see what happens. Um, but I would say that uh, usually uh, one of three or four things happens during this time. Uh, a lot of times if we see somebody, we'll get a phone call uh, after we serve the defendant, uh, either from that person or from that person's lawyer. And uh, at that point, they may want to try to work things out. They may want to talk about some of the issues in the case uh, and just try to see if there's any common ground. Uh, they may be calling really just as a courtesy to let us know uh, what they plan to do, or they may be asking for some additional time to answer, which uh, they can get under the rules of civil procedure, and we always uh, freely agree to. Um, so they may be telling us that they're going to make a motion with the court. Um, the other thing that I would say is the most common in the credit collection world is we hear absolutely nothing. We've sued somebody that... Uh, is either not going to hire a lawyer, hasn't come to terms with the fact that they owe money or uh, what have you, and uh, they're just simply ignoring things. So those are generally the things that uh, we see happen within those first 30 days. So if what has happened, James, is uh, we've gotten no answer, no response, uh, what happens next? 
So let me tell you an interesting story that just happened to me uh, just this past week. So we, uh, our, our client is owed a substantial amount of money. Uh, it has to do with a construction project. I had been talking with the, the uh, debtor, and they were saying, yeah, they thought they had all these allegations of uh, back charges or problems with the, with the service our client had provided. They've been saying they were going to send them to us, right? And I know these people, you know, in the community. So I was like, okay, all right, send it to us. You know, call them, come back and forth. Yeah, we're going to send it to you. Finally, client's like, look, I'm tired of this. We're going to go forward. And they say, file this lawsuit. So I file it. And um, we get service on it. And then one of the individual principal owners of the company calls right before uh, Thanksgiving and leaves a message, says, look, I know we owe you information. We haven't sent it. We'll get it to you. So I call them and go, hey, look, yeah, please send it. We'd like to see this so we can figure out if there's anything we need to do. Um, call them right after Thanksgiving again. He's like, yeah, I know we haven't. So never mentions the lawsuit. He never mentions that they've received it. <clears throat> so at, during the phone call, I said, hey, look, I'm going to make sure I give you a heads up. You know, we filed suit because, again, we had been promised information. hadn't hadn't heard anything from you. Not until this week did they provide information to us uh, by email, right? Uh, and it's not what they said it was going to be. Um, so it goes along the lines of, and they never admitted that they had received it, but I know they have because even one of the guys I talked to says, yeah, the, the lawsuit is on my desk. So I know they've got it now. But it goes to what you just said is they just, it's silence, right? I mean, you think they would have called and said, hey, I got the lawsuit. What's up with this? Or, hey, I got the lawsuit. How do we resolve this? But didn't even mention it. But we didn't mention it as we got going. But so, uh, Ian, if, if the defendant, the debtor, doesn't respond, generally what we do is we make a motion to the court for what's called an entry of default. We do this uh, basically, it doesn't matter what kind of case it is. Uh, and what that actually does is it the, the court then says, okay, they look at the file. The defendant has not responded to the court as they're required to by the summons. They sign a document that's called an entry of default. It says that's an, it's not a judgment. It's just an entry to say, at this point, you have failed to follow the rules, and we're going to have an entry of default against you. And everything that we've alleged at that point, at least uh, pursuant to the rules, is treated as true. Again, it's not a judgment. What that actually prevents the defendant from doing is coming in late and filing an answer. They then have to file a motion to set aside the entry of default in order to be able to file the motion. So it puts the pressure on them, and we do that on a regular basis. And a lot of times we even ask for a default judgment with it, but certainly do the entry. And again, depending on the case, depending on the facts, whether or not you ask for the entry of default or another type of judgment. Um, but So that's what the entry of default is. It's a great procedural move. move to say, okay, the, you didn't follow the rules, so the game stops with you being able to answer it. So, um, Ian, tell us about what a default judgment looks like. How do, what, when, would we use that and when? Yeah, so um, uh, default judgment is a great tool that we have under the rules of civil procedure whenever we have a non-responsive, non-answering defendant. So this is really part two of the default process. So part one is entry of default. And part two is actually getting a judgment. And that judgment is going to be something that uh, hopefully we can collect on down the road. And the way that we get a default judgment really depends on the type of case. So in a collections case where we're sued for a sum certain, oftentimes we'll file a verified complaint with an affidavit of account attached to it. 
And from that, uh, the clerk of court under the rules can actually enter a default judgment. So we don't even have to appear before a judge. It's really all decided just on some paperwork. So that's a very efficient way to get a judgment in a collection case whenever you've got a non-answering defendant. Uh, in other cases, uh, sometimes that are a little more complicated, maybe have uh, an issue that needs to be looked at by a judge but doesn't necessarily require a full hearing, uh, the rules of civil procedure allow us to actually ask that the judge enter default without a hearing. Uh, we do that every now and then. Uh, and then the other uh, way to get a default judgment is to get your entry of default and then notice your um, motion for default judgment for a hearing. Oftentimes those happen whenever you've got some kind of a complicated damages issue. Maybe it's a personal injury case that uh, you're getting a judgment in for some reason that uh, isn't being contested, but you want the judgment anyway. Um, you want to go and present your evidence of damages to the court. Uh, or if there are just complicated facts and circumstances about the case, uh, that conversation with the judge at the hearing uh, is important to really getting the best uh, default judgment that you can get. Um, but no matter what method we're using for securing a judgment uh, under whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, this is our opportunity to ask for anything that we would ask for at trial. So that includes damages, interest, attorney's fees, court costs, anything that you could conceivably be entitled to uh, at a trial, you can uh, generally get with a default judgment. So it's a great tool uh, to just get to a, an end if you've got someone on the other side who just doesn't want to, to answer. Um, now, you get your judgment, so the question becomes, is it really final? What can you do with it? So, James, talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah, and, and the word final actually comes out of the rules. What it means you know, is, is it, uh, is it enforceable, right? So it, it really depends, first on whether you're talking about an entry default or a default judgment. Again, remember, an entry default is more just a procedural method, uh, a procedural act, and the default judgment actually is the judgment itself. But so the entry default is relatively easy to undo. What the defendant or the the party that's been had an entry asserted against them, they have to show to the court that there's uh, good cause for setting it aside. Now, there's case law that gives you reasons for what uh, is good good cause. It's not like it's not even I, I would. But um, it's rules that are that have where the courts have said this would this is a good case right or this is uh, a good cause to set it aside. And again, case law. So think about this for for a moment. Most courts want issues resolved on the merits, right? They they want the issues to be resolved, not to lose in a technicality. So a lot of judges will say they don't want default, um, an entry default or default judgment to resolve a case if the case can be heard on its merits. So default, in a lot of respects, is disfavored by the courts. Now, default judgment is a little bit more difficult to set aside than an entry default is. So the defendant must show good cause as to why the default should be set aside. And they also got to demonstrate that there's a meritorious or real defense to the claim. And again, that sometimes that hurdle is not so high, and other times it is high. Uh, I've seen cases where judges have set aside an entry of default or and or default judgment up to a year, and there's there's that year period is not necessarily written in stone or even beyond, um, because they think good cause exists, or you know there's a good cause for the for setting aside, and there's a, a real real defense to the case. 
uh, of course, if we ha if we're the ones fighting against the settling side of the entry default or default judgment, you know, we're we're banging the table hard, saying, "Hey, look, no, that's there's not meritorious defense and there's not good cause." But I've seen judges on both sides. Actually, we helped helped the client recently where there was they had a the default already set already entered. I think before we got involved, and I'll tell you, I, we all were shocked that the the court made the ruling that they did. And of course, we don't wear the black robe, so we don't get to make the calls. But it just it can go both ways. But you you don't want to be the one having to push the the barrel over the hill if you don't have to. So you want to respond if you go to someone's complaint, respond. Don't don't let it go away. Um, if it's over one year that the default has been entered, uh, there's a rule which is called Rule 60. Um, there's not a way that, I, that we're aware of to set aside the fall judgment, even though I have seen judges do it uh, even after the one-year period because they think, again, good cause exists and they want things on the merit, right? So if I'm on the other side of that, I'm, I'm going, Your Honor, this is ridiculous. They've been told, they've, they've received notice over and over and over, and they've just ignored it. But again, it's, it's one of those things where you just got to go with the flow and See what happens with the case, right? I mean, it goes back to what we talked about. So many of these things are fact-based, and and you never know what the what the other side's going to say, and also how the judge is going to hear that, and how they're going to uh, respond to it. So, uh, hopefully, that helps. And and there's another type of judgment. You know, I think it's called a summary judgment that we're going to talk about, and how that looks different than a default judgment. Yeah, and before I get into summary judgment, what I'll say about defaults <clears throat> is that. I have uh, at times held on to defaults and gotten default judgments that uh, I was not at all confident we were going to hang on to. And then I've had situations that I thought were crystal clear for setting aside uh, default where the judge disagreed with me. So uh, it, it's amazing how whichever side you're on, That's right. uh, it kind of determines how you feel about a particular right. set of facts. And again, I'm just going to re reiterate, if you get a summons complaint, respond to it timely don't don't think well i'll just i'll be able to hire you know ian or james and get get this thing set aside don't do that uh as soon as you get it call your call your lawyer yeah even under the best set of circumstances if there is such a thing in a default situation i'm always nervous until we get the ruling back because uh you know, we are kind of up against it until we get that default undone so uh it's a lot easier, a lot cheaper just to answer right. whatever you receive, deal with it. Um, so summary judgment is another tool that we use. And the reason that I like to do this uh, is it always requires a judge in order to get summary judgment. And the judge looks at the, the information in the case, and then they determine that there's no genuine issue of material fact and that you're entitled to judgment as a matter of law. Um, so that is just by its nature a higher standard than a default judgment, uh, which is really just winning by default. Um, these motions need to be supported by an affidavit or by verified pleadings. Uh, and then the judge is going to enter the, the motion, assuming that it's an uncontested motion and you've got some kind of affidavits to support your position. So it gets you to the same place as a default. But in my opinion, it's a lot easier to hang on to a summary judgment. And by contrast, it's a lot harder to set aside a summary judgment than it is a default judgment. I think generally you're still going to be operating under Rule 60, trying to set aside a uh, summary judgment, just like you would with a default judgment. But there's just something about having a judge enter summary judgment 
um, that just necessarily changes the flavor of how uh, any effort to undo that is going to look. Um, and I think uh, also with summary judgment, it's entered by a judge all the time. So whichever judge enters it is going to have to be the judge to undo it. Um, so you're going to have to go back in front of that same judge, which just kind of as a matter of tactics and strategy makes it a lot more difficult for whoever's trying to undo it because one judge can't overrule another. So uh, you're going to have to figure out as the moving party trying to undo a summary judgment, how do you get back in front of that judge that entered summary judgment, which uh, especially in the, of the realm of COVID can be a little bit challenging. Um, so I would say uh, just as kind of a concluding thought that our uh, main goal or first goal in getting any judgment is just to get the judgment. Uh, so we want to get the judgment. And then once we've got the judgment, we want to make sure we can hang on to it after we've got to that point. then we try to figure out, all right, how do we collect on this? But we want a good enforceable judgment uh, as an initial matter. And we've got some good ways to try and do that uh, under the rules whenever we have a non-answering opinion. Ian, Ian, one thing you talked about, about the summary judgment being before judge, and you know, we talked about the cases on the merits. So if, there, if it's a motion for a summary judgment and they're verified pleadings with verification and maybe an affidavit to support it, uh, in addition, that's... In, in the court's eyes and in terms, it's being heard on the merits, right? You've given notice to the other side. They've just chosen to ignore it. Um, that's It's hard to set that aside. A lot of times we will go for the summary of the faults, depending on the circumstance and the issues involved. But it's I, I'll tell you, it's really hard, I think, to set aside summary judgment. Um, so that helps a lot. And generally good to go at that point. So, uh, so that's yeah. some good advice. Um. All right, James, I think you're going to talk to us about a, a question of the week this week, and I'm excited to hear a little bit about it. It sounds uh, pretty timely and pretty uh, pretty fascinating. So we've had, you know, we get this these kind of calls all the time, thankfully, and it has to do with generational transfer of uh, privately held companies, right? So, and, and they, they come in all throughout the year, but we seem to get a lot more of them in the latter part of the year. Um, and you know, when you think about like a family owned business, um, and there's one generation wants to transfer it to the, to the next generation. Um, how do you do that? What are the issues? Um, as I've told clients, a lot of times it's with, with the sale of a business or the transfer of the business from one generation to the other, the hardest part is usually the mental aspect of it for the generation that's truly in control or if it's the generation that created it and you know, birthed it and grew it, uh, to let go. And once they have decided to do that, that's the, that's the biggest hurdle. And the, it, I think the one that takes the longest, you know, there's always the legal issues which we can deal with. Uh, we need to figure out how to work and how it's to be written, how to transfer and so forth. That's not um, all that complicated because we do it a lot, but it's one of those things where it's, you, you need to think through it. But there's also so you got the the mental aspect, you got the legal aspect, you got the accounting, and you got the the tax aspect. So we got a phone call the other day, um, and we've had actually two of these in the last two weeks um, where they want to do a generational transfer. One is actually doing it ahead of time. He's thinking about this for next year because of what he thinks is going to be the tax changes uh, with the IRS uh, and the and the code. Um, he's 
plan ahead. I mean, his, his next generation is already ready. They're they're in place. They've had the conversations right. He's teaching um, the next generation how to make that transfer. But the hang up with them right now is dealing with the tax issues. They're trying to make sure they know the tax aspects this year, and then they're guessing at what the tax aspects will be for next year. Um, so the advice we I tell clients, I never forget. I met with a client one time before couple of years ago um and they had had some real challenges in their family um with how do they do this generational transfer and i met with them for probably two or three hours and what i didn't realize is that the generation that was in charge at that time had not made the mental decision to let go right the the generation that was in charge wanted to make the transfer but wanted to hold on to the reins to the to the company and that's tough to do um, we talked for hours on end about that and he wanted to hold on to it and not let go. And his kids were ready, right? They'd been in the business. They knew what it was about. And the kids had, you know, they were adults, obviously long time adults. And they were getting frustrated that dad wouldn't go, wouldn't let go. And dad was up there in age. Um, and I thought, I thought this was going to be an easy transfer. Um, but it, it took a lot of time. We did not get a, uh, an agreement done at that that day and I left the meeting and they called me back about a week later and decided the kids said we don't want to buy it we're not doing it because dad wouldn't let go so I, I it brings me to, to the the thing I think again is the hardest is that generation saying okay I trust you I'm ready to let go I'm gonna let you I'm gonna trust that you're gonna grow this thing and preserve it right however you best you can and make sure they know the ins and outs. Make sure they know the good stuff and the bad stuff. Make sure they know where the risk is and where the reward is. And then let go of the, of the reins, right? Um, and let that generation pick it up and run with it. And from a legal aspect, you know, we, again, it depends on what kind of entity it is. depends on what kind of um, transaction you want that to make. Is it a buyout over time? Is it, you know, is it a, a stock transfer? Is it a... Uh, um, just a dollar value transfer. How do you do that? Right. What does that look like? Um, and then deal with the accounting. So, you know, I don't know if you've ever, if you've encountered those situations uh, with business owners, you got any thoughts on that? So I've never been involved uh, nearly as much as you have with uh, any of those types of cases, but I think it's really interesting what you point out about uh, just the mental aspect of it. And I know, especially in the area that we primarily practice, which is uh, Wake County, Eastern North Carolina, People are so wrapped up in their identities and what they do for a living that it uh, it makes sense why there's uh, this mental block that people have a lot of times about letting go, doing the transfer because it's like you're you're really giving up something, uh, some part of yourself. And uh, I've, a lot of what we do as lawyers, I think, is uh, is counsel people uh, about how to deal with issues like that uh, more than just get get down in the legal stuff, but. Uh, that's uh, that's a really interesting uh, observation that you've made. One one other thing that sort of comes to mind, and I've I've had this conversation with clients over the years, is you know there are aspects and benefits of having a family-owned, closely held corporation, and sometimes it could be enjoying the the assets that the company owns. Right, if the company owns a boat, or if the company owns a plane, or, or whatever kind of you know, say it's vehicles, right. Um, and the owners 
primarily use the boat or the vacation house or whatever it may be. And so when that transfer comes about, right? So the, the if it's the parents that are running the company and they're going to transfer it to their kids or the kids. So what happens to the toys that we call them, right? The company toys. Um, so who does it, who owns it, right? Well, the company owns it. So the parents that are going to transfer the business to the kids, you know, a lot of times I have, I've dealt with owners when they say, well, look, I, I don't want to let go of my beach house I'm, or my mountain house, whatever it may be. Right. And I'm planning on having that as my, my residence or I want the motor home or I want the plane for my own use. Well, that's nice, but it belongs to the company. So you got to figure out how ahead of time, what are you going to do with that? Right. And how do you, how do you deal with that issue? Do you, do you buy it from the company or do you keep it in the company and then have some agreement to use it uh, occasionally? And again, I just tell people it's one of those, it's a mental aspect of letting go of the baby that you may have birthed and grew up. But also it's the, you got to clean up the toy aspect, but either before you sell it or transfer it to your kids or you sell it to somebody else. So a third party, um, and, and those things generally don't, don't happen in 30 days, right? You want to think through this and, so if you're in that realm of, of thinking through this now, right, it's one of those, you got to get your brain wrapped around how do I transfer this? So anyway, it's just some, some thoughts that come to mind. And it's, again, we've gotten the phone calls in December. Hey, I want to transfer this, this month. Okie dokie. Um, it may or may not happen, right? Cause there may be, sometimes it's just too big. You can't do it, but sometimes you can. So. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's, uh, that's good advice. Well, we hope that uh, you've enjoyed this episode and that you've, learned a little bit about a variety of topics uh, that are going to be of some use to you. We look forward to you joining us on the next one.